we've been going through Acts. We have spent the last quite a few amount of weeks going through Acts, and I've been incredibly encouraged by this book and, and the time that we've spent going through it. But I hope, I hope, I hope, hope you guys have gone back through and are reading through Acts, are listening to the things I've been preaching, have been asking questions, delving in. Last Sunday's um, sermon on, on, on baptism was challenging for some, exciting for some, which is fantastic. That's what I want to see. We, we also got to see my dear, dear Molly get baptized. So that was amazing, hey? Changed your life. Yeah. Made you more peaceful. Do you want to come and tell the story? Well, what happened is I'm, I'm very, very frightened of water and putting, I suffer with claustrophobia and I was absolutely terrified. And um, when I, I went to get baptized, all that completely left me. And um, I didn't know this, but apparently I even floated on the water afterwards. And um, I just feel a lot more at peace. And that's about um, how I can describe it. Molly came, Molly came to Jess and I at the end of last Sunday and said, Ben, I, I feel like the, I need to do this, that it's going to bring me into more of who he is, but I'm, I'm petrified to do this. So she, it wasn't like she was, she was mildly frightened. huh? You were very, very afraid to get in the water. But now there was a, there was a breaking of that when she, when she went in, she came up. So that for, for us is incredibly exciting. And, and he's not here today, but Jack gave his life to God and, and also wants to be baptized and is, is, is changing, wanting to change his life, not because we said he should, but because he's, he's wrestling with this thing to say, I want to know who you are, Jesus. I want to know more of you. I want to know. So Acts for me, is, this has been incredible and we are still plugging our way through it. We're, we're on Acts 9 this morning. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Acts 9, I'm, I'm going to read from Acts 9 and quite a few other areas of Acts. Acts 9 verse 1, talking about Saul, we, we, we've seen Saul in the rest of, um, in the earlier parts of Acts when, when Stephen was stoned and, and, and other things were happening, we've seen his name mentioned, but we've seen him in, in way as a, as a monster um, throughout this, chasing and persecuting the Christians th throughout. So we're going to take off from Acts, Acts 9 verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belongings to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and failing and sorry, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who come, sorry, all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you come, has sent me so that you may regain sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed the name of Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his, this name? And he has not come here for this purpose, but to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This story is incredibly important to everything we understand in the New Testament. The reason is, is that Paul wrote a, a, a very large portion of the New Testament. He is, is a massive part of the writings that we understand in, in, in the New Testament, but we see his name as Paul, not as Saul. But there's a, a transition that takes place when Saul is on this road to Damascus that's been preached hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in, in so many different areas. And most of your Bibles will say that it's the conversion of Paul. That's the listing of the story. But there's a man named N.T. Wright who is a, a very well-known theologian. And he, he challenges that, that topic to say that it wasn't a conversion that, Paul, that took place. He wasn't coming from another religion or from, um, from not believing in God at all. He was coming from a place. He was transitioning out of the old and into the new. I love that this is the next story that we see after the baptism of, um, of the Ethiopian eunuch because the very baptism, as I preached last week, is a transition from the old life into the new, that there's a breaking down and a building up that takes place. This story is a carry-on of that old transitioning into the new. Saul would have been a phenomenal, phenomenal teacher and understanding of the law. He would have been a well-renowned, um, um, passionate Jew. In all sense of the word, he was doing everything a good Christian should have been doing. In the, in, in, by means of the law. He was the, the top echelon of, of uh, Bible scholars and teachers. He was a well-renowned Jew. So we read this story, when we read about Saul persecuting, we're going, well, he was a monster. No, he was doing what he thought was right. He was, quote-unquote, protecting the faith. He was calling out the uh, false teachers, if you like. Right? He was in, for all intents and purposes, he was in the right. He was the good guy. But then when we see Jesus come, we understand who Christ is. We understand the, the very deity of, of Christ and the dying and raising again. We start to realize that the story had shifted and Paul didn't realize what the shift was. He was still caught up in the old, doing the things that he thought were right. So I love when Jesus speaks to him this and he says, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who, am, who are you? He says, I'm the one you've been persecuting. Jesus doesn't slam him and, and rebuke him. He just says, you're the one who was doing the things you should have been, but now the time has changed and you've misunderstood who I am. You've misunderstood the very things that I need you to do. I've always struggled with this verse in Matthew 7, 21 to 23 that says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This was the position that Paul was in. Right? He was operating from a place of doing the work for, the, for God, but he lost and there was a breakdown in his relationship with the Father. So the work he was doing was no longer the thing that his father had asked him to do. See, for us, one of the most important things we can begin to understand as Christians is keeping a communication line to God open all the time. So we're constantly asking him, am I doing the things you want me to be doing? Am I being in the places you want me to be? Am I who you want me to be? Because if something changes, we can't be dogmatic in the things he once told us. We must continue to walk through and do the things he's continually asking us to do. In the space of two weeks, what Paul was doing goes from correct to incorrect, from fighting for the church to persecuting the church in a split moment because he loses the understanding of who Christ was. He loses the mission and the focus that God had outlaid for his people. We can do the same thing. There's an Australian term called flogging a dead horse where we just go for it and go for it and go for it and go for it. We never actually stop to look for a new set of plans. We never stop to go, maybe this isn't working anymore or the thing that I was supposed to be doing. So we never stop and recenter and refocus ourselves to say, God, what is it you're actually doing in our lives? We just keep going for something and going for it and going for it. We can be, we can be the most godly man or woman in the room, but we can still miss the relationship that God wants to have with us. Paul knew the scriptures and he knew the way of, of the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, and the God of Jacob, but he still missed the relationship to understand the next plan. He missed the next mission. He missed what it was God was asking him to do. So often we get caught in the mechanic of religion. We get caught in the mechanic of the church. The oh, That's fantastic. I mean, I thought, I thought we were all going to heaven. I was like, stop for a second. Do I... I don't have to finish this. It's time. It's time. I almost asked, did anyone else hear that? I was like, am I, am I the only guy hearing something? Whew. I was excitement, not fear. I was, I was pumped. Right when I said we get caught in the mechanic of religion, boom, trumpet sounds, we go. It's fantastic. That's my kind of Sunday. Often we get caught in the mechanic of religion, the do's and don'ts, the step-by-step, step, the show up on a Sunday morning, show up on a Thursday night. And that's what Paul was caught in. He was caught in the rules, the things that he was supposed to do. And he lost the very understanding of a relationship with the Father. When we, when we make church all about a Sunday morning gathering, when we make church all about being a good boy or a good girl, we lose the relationship with the Father. We lose that very connection line that says, God, I, I want to know who you are. 
I want to understand you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know more about you. Do I think the Sunday morning gathering is important? Yes, absolutely. Because we come together and we, be, we create community and we strengthen one another. However, there's a bigger picture than that. And it's two things. It's an individual relationship with the Father. And it's a, it's a corporate relationship with the Father. Both things operate in unison to understand the plans and the vision of God for us to then go and outwork the things that he has for us to do. We cannot continue to get caught in the mechanic. We lose sight of the why and we just keep operating in the how. Saul is what happens when we do not let the living power of Jesus Christ operate in the way we see the scriptures. When we let our intellect bring the scriptures to life, we see religion. But when we let the spirit of God bring the scriptures to life, we see the love of God. It's both. We have to understand the words that are being written, but we cannot surpass the spiritual relationship that comes from understanding who he is. It's the Holy Spirit that brings the scriptures to life, but we cannot negate the scriptures. The scriptures are a powerful understanding of who God is, but it's the Holy Spirit that brings that to life. We don't, we don't go, well, we've just got relationships, so we toss the scriptures away. The scriptures are what allow us to draw closer into that relationship, as well as our prayer time, our time of worship. Those things, they come together to help and build our relationship with God. The interesting thing about this verse is that it's not just Luke that tells the story of Saul's um, meeting on the road to Damascus. In Acts 22, we actually see the story told for the first time by Paul. It's not Luke explaining the story, it's Paul. And it says this, Acts 22, 1 verse 21. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Shh, he's speaking in Hebrew, this is gonna be serious. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in, in, in Cilicia, Cilicia, rather. That still might be wrong, but it's, we can all read it there. But brought up in this city, educated at the, at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I've been there. I've learnt the things that I was supposed to learn. I've been zealous since a kid. I was trained and, and perfected by the very, the very um, top leaders of the law. I persecuted, verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. I've, I've done what you've asked me to do. I've killed those who are, who are saying that, that Jesus is, is the, the superior. I killed those guys. I did that thing that you asked me. From then I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take, to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. I went with the mission to do as you asked. But as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, remember that, because I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I'll, I'll talk about it in a minute. I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, 
receive your sight. And at the very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, and now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, that's a scary word, and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving, watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. Knowing where we've been in this sermon when I read about Stephen and I explained how incredible Stephen was, Paul, in that, that's his testimony of the events that takes place. He, out of his mouth, he says, I was there. I told them to stone Stephen. So you can imagine the disgust from among the Jews. Even Ananias in that first verse, he says, God, I don't want to lay hands on this guy. So he should be blind. He killed all of us. He killed my good friend, Stephen. I'm not going to lay hands on him. But he understood the love and the power of God more that he said, fine, if you've asked me to do it, I'll do it. Imagine, imagine laying hands on the man who just stoned your best friend and saying, I have, God's given me the ability to let this man free, to set him free into a full new life of which God, you're going to, glory, you're going to glorify him because he's going to do big things. I get to decide whether that's going to happen or not. But God, you've asked me to, so I'll do it. That's powerful. That's incredibly powerful that, that, yes, we're reading about Saul and who he is, but just Ananias to understand that, that, that God, I'll go. I don't like this man. He's a monster and he killed my friend and, and he's done horrible things, but I'll go and I'll lay hands on him. That is the most incredible understanding of repentance and forgiveness of somebody. And Ananias steps straight into that. But, but the interesting thing about Paul's take on this is I've heard preached before that, that people will use this verse to say, see, God makes us sick because he did that with Saul. He, he took the blindness from Saul's eyes, which means that we can use this verse to understand that God can make us sick in order to strengthen us and grow us. I don't believe that. I don't think that's right. And I think this verse doesn't show that at all. Because what we see happening here in Acts 22 is we actually see Paul say it was the glory, the brightness of the glory of God that, that made me unable to see. When you take that verse and you look at it in the King James, you look at that original word, it says the brightness, but the word actually is glory. It was the glory of God that I encountered in that place that actually made my eyes not be able to see. God didn't take his sight and say, when you believe in me, I'll give it back to you, because that's not free will, right? Then he's strong-arming Saul into a position to say, you will know that I'm king, I will force you to see it. That's not who our God is. What happened was he stepped into the fullness and the presence of God, and the glory and power of God took away his sight. We see that all through the scriptures. We see Moses see a very glimpse of the back of God and he, sh and he, and he shines for, for days, right? He has to cover himself up. We know that there's power in the glory of God. We know that. But then when we read this verse, we get a bit bamboozled as to whether or not God did it or not. He's, Paul explains it was the, the glory of the light that I saw in the presence of Jesus. The presence of, of, of Jesus was the one who, who uh, that my sight moved. The other thing we see here is the word trance. 
that, that Paul goes and he goes back to the synagogues and he falls into a trance. We, in the Christian world, get upset with two words, meditation and trance. Because we get a bit, we get a bit, oh, what is that? Is that new age? It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. They took time understanding and positioning their heart and their focus onto God. And we coined the term meditation and then we said we shouldn't do it. But what happens is in meditation, you do one thing. You set your focus, your heart, your position, your stance onto something. Now, depending on what you focus on, what you take the time positioning on is, the way, is, is where you draw life or death from, right? So what Paul did was he went back to the, to the temple courts. He went back to the place he came from and he sat down and probably thought this, Wowzers, a heap of stuff's going on. I'm going to take some time to quieten myself and find out what it is is actually taking place. That's the Australian Ben version of what he would have said. Wowzers is not in there. You can't read that from the scriptures. I'm putting that in, just to be clear. But he's probably gone and he sat down and he's realized, I, I was going to kill Jews. I, 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 met, I met Jesus on the road. And, and now I love the Jews and I want to protect the Jews and all those who were my friends and colleagues and, and, and life teachers are now trying to kill me, right? He's probably sitting down and just having a moment to think, God, what are you doing? Because you have to understand this is that when, when, when he's on the road and he asks God, show me who you are, N.T. Wright has this incredible explanation in, in a book that he wrote called, um, called Paul. A, a biography. It's a massive book. It's, it's phenomenal. He takes a lot and a lot of words to explain who Paul was. But he, he has this incredible understanding of, of Jewish meditation. Right? There was a number of Jewish meditations that, that they used to do in, in ancient Hebraic that positioned their hearts onto God. The, the scholars and, and the, the understanding... Um, sorry, the teachers of the law, would have taken time to position themselves and to meditate on, the, on, on God. There was a few different ones that were famous among the, the, the ancient Jews, but there was one that, that became very, very famous, and it was called a throne chariot meditation. And what they would do is they would sit down in a place that's quiet, and they would, they would read a part of, the, of the, the law, a part of the Old Testament for us, and they would take a picture and they would meditate on that until they were seeing it like the writer had explained it. And N.T. Wright argues that Paul, on, his, on the road to Damascus, had a long time. The journey, as the crow flies that I measured on Google Maps, was over 200 kilometers. Okay, so we can put a little bit more on there given that they were windy, broken roads, unlike the roads we have today. But N.T. Wright argues that he was using this type of meditation called a throne chariot meditation. And he was meditating on a verse in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28. And what he would do would read, was he would read this verse and he would picture the elements as though he were there. So let's just do it for a moment. Everyone close your eyes. I'm going to read the verse. Picture the elements as if the writer is explaining them. It says this, And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. In appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. 
and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. It's a phenomenal picture when you take the time to slow down, to read scripture and to picture it as if it's being explained. When I was sitting at my desk during the week, I, I read this and just took a moment just sitting and, and pondering on what it is that's actually being said here. He's explaining the very scene that Paul or Saul finds himself in. Saul falls on his face and he hears the voice of God after the glory meets him on the road to Damascus. What's highlighted in this to me is that the meditation on the scriptures brings us to a place where we can actually see the things of God. That our imagination in our creation was created in such a way that we can actually begin to see the things that God's given to us. I've read that verse many a time from, um, from Revelation before we go into worship because it, it gives us a position and a view of the very heavenly realm by which we are worshipping in. The meditation that, that, that Saul takes is a meditation to say, Jesus, who are you really? God, who are you really in this moment? Who is it that Ezekiel's talking about? Who is it that has actually come? I've spent my whole life trying to know more about you, God, to read from these, these scripts and these texts. Who are you? And right in that very moment, he sees the least likely person he would have thought would have met him on that road. There's no way in a million years... Saul thought I was going to meet Jesus Christ of Nazareth because he thought he was a crazy man. He would have been on the team persecuting him. He would have been that one of those positions saying, this is not the guy we should be following, yet it's he who meets them on the road. I think this is a phenomenal point for us that we often we want to box God in and say, I know how he's going to come. On a Sunday morning when we come into worship, I know what it's going to look like for God to move. It's an incredible challenge for those of you who are fasting. Because we go, I know what God's going to give me in the midst of my fast. No, you don't. Saul didn't. He couldn't have thought, God, I'm going to focus on you. God, I'm going to, I'm going to spend my time on this 200-kilometer journey with the clippity-clap of a horse through this mountain scene, focusing on you. And I hope to see you. And boom, he sees Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Instantly, everything he had ever been taught, everything that he had been fighting for, all the pain and the suffering, all the persecuting of these people, he has to realize right in that moment, I'm wrong. All this work I've done, everything I've lent toward, everything that I've put myself into, I've been wrong. I've positioned myself to a, a place to worship you, God. But in actual fact, I've, I've, I've 
I've done the wrong thing. And there's an, uh, uh, sorry, an incredible verse in Acts 26, another chunky piece of scripture I'm going to read, is the third time we see the story of the road to Damascus in Acts. One book, same story, three times, heavily outlined. And again, it's Paul talking to King Agrippa, explaining and defending himself. Acts 26, one verse, verse, sorry, Acts 26, 1 to 32. It says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand, because he's now, he's now transitioned from Saul into Paul. He stretched out his hand and he made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it though incredibly Incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison. Now he's calling them saints, which is fantastic. We see the transition from him being an enemy to being not sure, to being a friend. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets of Moses said would come to pass that the Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul accepts the pain and suffering that he caused. He says, I was that. I was everything that, I, that, that they said I was. I was the very person who I tried to be. I was the, the teacher of teachers. I was the guy. And all of a sudden, I was broken down to nothing in one word. It's me, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
Often in our Christian walk, the, the further along we go, the more and more we've seen and done, we, we kind of start to feel a bit bulletproof, like we know everything and we've seen everything and we've, I've heard that verse or I've listened to that preach or I've done that now and I know how it is. And in one sweeping word, I'm Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we get broken down to nothing so that he can rebuild us. This is an incredible testament of uh, the, 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 the guy the very the best preacher that there was, the, the hero of the faith. And in one word, Jesus Christ, he gets crushed to everything I ever knew was nothing. An intellect is someone that lives primarily in their head. The Pharisees were driven by intellect, but when Jesus began to call them out of intellect and into operation, it was the, it was the, the movement of thought into action, from consuming to contending from head knowledge to hand knowledge. This is the very tr transition of the road to Damascus. Paul is transitioning from one way of thinking to another. He then goes on later in the, in the New Testament to say that we have to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. The reason Paul is able to say that with absolute power and strength is that he went through it. His mind was entirely renewed on that moment. And then he goes on to write and say, I don't have everything I've ever wanted to be. I'm not the Christian I want to be. There's so much further for me to go, yet I'll never give up this fight and give up this race. So he goes from a position of being, I am the hero of the faith. I know everything. I'm the guy I've studied. I've learned all the things to, I don't know at all everything we could know and I should know, but I'm going to continue to fight for Christ. And my mind is going to continue and continue and continue to be, to be renewed. If we allow pride, and I spoke about this yesterday, uh, sorry, last Sunday, if we allow pride to rule our life, we will always give ourselves the glory. But when we humble ourselves to say, God, I don't know all these things. I don't know the things of which I speak. Will you come and bring your spirit to actually allow your spirit to speak through me? Then he gets the glory in that and we don't get the glory. I've said it time in and time out, and I'll continue to say it until I'm in the ground, but it's not about us. We get the incredible option to play a part in who he is, but it's all about you, Jesus. And you get the glory. So in my humility, I lay myself down. That's again why Paul is able to write, as an apostle, I come as a, as a drink offering poured out onto your sacrifice, emptied, given all that I have onto you and who you are. Because he understood, wow, I've spent my whole life making it about me and my knowledge and the intellect that I have. And in that one word or that one phrase, Jesus of Nazareth, all of it gets pulled apart and it becomes about him and not about me. The road to Damascus, this whole, this whole story that's highlighted again and again and again, and the thing that's pointed towards who he is and, and, and who it is that Jesus is, is all about the transition from the old life into the new, of which we are continually walking and trying to understand. How do I transition out of the old things, the old thinking, the old way, into the new and what he has for me and who he is? And I love, I love that Paul is given, he's given the very understanding of, of what, his, what his, his plan and purpose is, you are going to the Jews. You are going, Paul, to step into, sorry, to the Gentiles, to step into the life of the Gentiles and to bring my name and my purpose and my plan in that. 
He says in verse 29, which I, I didn't finish reading, whether short or long, I, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these, these chains. And the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They give him the freedom in that because he refuses to back down and he stands on the new thing that he's seen, the power and purpose of Jesus. At any point, Paul could have said, no, I was wrong. Sorry, I got caught up. Let me go back as a Pharisee and I'll stand with you. But he refuses. His life's been changed. In that moment when I spoke about yesterday, when we're baptized, when we were brought into death and brought back up into new life, our life changes. The road to Damascus changed Paul's life and allowed him to lay himself down and pick up who Jesus is, to put on Jesus, to, 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 to decide to walk in the life and plan and purposes that he has. This story is, is, is as much for us as it is for a new Christian. It's that, it's that constant walking and understanding, that constant meditation and positioning of self to say, Jesus, who are you in this? Who is it that you are? But if we're not willing to hear something that we don't expect, we're wasting our time. As I said, for those guys when, who, who are fasting, they, they're standing in that place to say, Jesus, who are you? I want to know more. I'm, I'm fasting because I want to step into more of you and more of you. And then he reveals himself and we go, oh, it's not quite what I had envisioned or it's not quite what I wanted or it's not quite who, who I thought I was going to get. God will come and reveal himself in those moments the way he sees fit. And the best thing is, is that's perfect for us because it's better than we could ever imagine. I want to go back into worship just for, for a little moment. I want us just to spend a moment just thinking and, and pondering on this. But, but I, want to, I want to highlight something for us. I, I've been thinking through of, of Acts as to what this does for us. What, what, what does this whole book do for our life other than you guys sitting here and getting a week-to-week um, read through and, and unpack of the verse. What is it actually doing for us? And while I was thinking during the week, we, while we're seeing some incredible things like Molly being baptized or, or, or those sorts of things, I, I wonder for all of us, for those who have heard this, these stories again and again and again, what is it actually doing for us? Is there a, a moment in our life that we can realize, okay, I'm not coming to church for the mechanic of it. I'm not coming to church for the Sunday morning, sit here and receive something and hopefully it's good, not bad, and if it's bad, well, we'll just come again next Sunday and hope for, for better again or worse. But what can we actually do to position our lives to say, God, I'm coming because I want to worship and glorify you and I'm positioning myself to glorify your name. And while I was thinking through this meditation and whether I even um, touched on the word meditation or the word trance where Paul spends time thinking about him. And then this morning, Sean and Coco led us to a place where we just stood there in silence. And I've said this before, but as a church leader, you start thinking, are people awkward? Are people uncomfortable? Should we move out of this? How long's too long? We start thinking through these things. But... As I was standing there this morning, I didn't have those thoughts because I had come into this thinking, man, God, show me the understanding of meditation. 
Show me how I meditate on who you are. And a good part of that is to silence ourselves. Just to spend time saying, God, I'm, I'm going to take a moment where I'm not going to take my eyes off you. So much of the scriptures we see where they, Jesus, where he removes himself from the noise. He removes himself from, from the, the, the day-to-day pains and struggles. And he removes himself. It says that he retreats to the wilderness because he's going to quiet himself before the Father. Now, we have to do that in our own quiet time. We have to do that in, in, in our day-to-day lives. But there is, I think there is a picture of corporately focusing on him too. So how do we do that? This is how I do it. It's as easy as, as this for me. When I first started playing drums, I, someone said to me that it's not about, it's not about a, a good performance and you putting on a good show. And I always struggled with that because I, I learned to play the drums quite, um, I use all my body parts. And, and someone once said to me that it's a, bit, yeah, it's a bit showy. So I remember thinking, well, Flip, I don't know how else to play. I don't know how else to do this. So I, often when I drum, I, I have this picture in my head and I'm in a massive stadium and I visualize this while I'm worshiping. So if you see me with my eyes closed and I'm like right in the guts of it, I'm thinking about this. I'm in a massive stadium that's empty and I'm on the center of the stage with a drum kit. And in the front row is a man sitting, watching me play. And as I, as I play, I begin to focus on the man who's sitting. It sounds so unusual. I can't believe I'm halfway through explaining this. But I focus on the man who's sitting in the front row. And I, I, I begin to watch his attributes. Obviously, the man's Jesus. Right? And I, I begin to walk through the way he looks. His nose and his eyes while I'm playing and I'm focused on him. Because as I'm playing, I'm focused on him. But as he's sitting there, he's focused on me. And I picture who he is. And I picture what it looks like. When I'm standing out and I'm, and I'm and like this morning, I'm picturing that throne room. I've read that verse again and again and again. I'm picturing the throne of God. I'm picturing, picturing myriads and myriads of angels and me, little old Ben, sitting in between declaring his name. But my eyes never come off the focus of Jesus. I was talking with Josh a little while ago and I said, man, I don't notice stuff during worship. I don't notice, I don't know if the words are right. I don't even know if we have words up there because I'm not looking at that. And that's not to say you shouldn't or you can't, but what I do is I close my eyes and I'm trying to focus on him. That's to meditate, to sit quietly in your room and not have to say a hundred different things, but to close your eyes, take a piece of scripture, like the wheel inside the wheel, the chariot of God, like Paul was focusing on, and just looking at that and saying, Jesus, who are you? That for me is closing, is knocking on the door and allowing him to answer. Me sitting in that place, picturing him, asking that question, who are you? Jesus, that is the knock on the door. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I am who I said that I am. I am everything you've read about. I told you who I was and I am all of that. So why don't you stand for a moment, for a longer period than a moment. 
So let's just close our eyes. Sean and Coco are going to lead us in worship. Shawnee, can you not put any words up, please? I don't think words are bad, but I want to take the words off for a minute because it's not about the words that we're about to sing. Let Sean and Coco sing over you. Let them prophesy and, and, and operate in their gift. You don't need to sing at the moment. Close your eyes and just begin whatever it looks like to you. God's given you an imagination. He's given you a mind's eye to actually be able to picture something. So close your eyes and with your imagination, begin to, to think about that verse in Revelation. Think about the throne room. Think about the throne. Let all the noise and all the bottles and things crushing go out. Just quieten your soul. Let those things that are flooding through your mind, that what's going to have happen for lunch, where do I have to be this afternoon, let that come through and go out. But keep your eyes on that picture of the throne room. That green color flashing through the throne. God sitting there with Jesus at his right hand, with delight all over his face watching myriads of myriads, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of angels, people standing, just opening their mouth and hearing, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, and who is to come. The trumpet sounds. The, the trumpet sounds sound much better in heaven <laughs> but keep your eyes closed just keep that focus it's, it's incredible the, the things that the world throws at us to take our focus from that place
not in a hurry to move from this place.
someone here who doesn't feel as though they can they can dine in the father's house they don't feel like they can they can fit there's something they've done or there's there's a place that they've gone to they feel like it's too far from the father as I was just worshiping now I just I felt that God prompt me in the prodigal son so if that's you and you want to come forward and, and have us pray for you please would you do that because there's a moment in that in the prodigal son where the son doesn't have to do anything to come back into the father's house. The best moment in that verse is when the son walks up the driveway, the father runs down to meet the son. And in this moment of meditation we've been doing on and focusing on God, if that's you, you're the son. And Jesus is the, is, is the, is the Father in, in, the, in the picture that meets the Son on the road. But there's a joy and a delight when the Father runs down the road to embrace the Son and to give Him back everything that was taken, the shoes and the coat and the ring, which all signify the importance of the Son. There's nowhere you can go that the Father won't allow you back into the house. There's nowhere you can go that the Father won't meet you on that road and run down and embrace you. There's nowhere you can go that the Father's love won't be too much to come back into. So God, whoever that is right now, Jesus, I pray that your love just begins to unfold over them, Lord, to fill them, overflowing, Jesus. heart may begin to, to beat again. They may begin to understand love, that brokenness be formed, reformed. 
heart that's been torn apart be put back together by you, Jesus. That they can picture themselves on that road walking toward you and you running to meet and embrace them. Just fill them right now, Holy Spirit, with your love, your comfort, and your peace. Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for all that you allow us to do. For who you are and what you are doing in this place. We declare your kingship in this city. We declare your kingship and rule and reign in this house. And we declare your kingship in this nation. We love you, beautiful Jesus. Help us as we go about our week to keep our eyes transfixed on your face. Help us to keep, keep our, an understanding of who you are in every area of our life. We love you, Lord. We honor you and glorify your name, Jesus. Amen. There's coffee at the back and there's um, snacks. Stay in worship if you want to. We're going to stay in worship for a while. But if you need to go, go.